I wanted to do that for all of my career. And that's what private equity helps me do. It is to look at a lot of information, some of it which contradicts itself, and to try to learn as much as possible about how good a business is and what its future potential is. And along with many other smart people, help to make a decision on whether we invest and if we do invest, how to help that company get to the best possible version of itself. Hello and welcome to the BLK Podcast. My name is EOL. I'm a research equity analyst uh, at BLK. Um, Today, we're going to have Zach Elliott introduce our guests. But as a disclaimer, all the opinions stated on this podcast are of the analysts and of the guests and not of BLK. uh, And they're not supposed to represent BLK or its sponsors. The BLK Podcast is supposed to enrich, educate, and aggregate our internal and external community. So without further ado, Zach. Hello guys, my name is Zach. I'm a first year student at studying Imperial College London in the UK, and I'm now the Chief Strategy Officer at BLK. Today, our guest is Melikot Bate, a private equity senior associate in the healthcare sector at Goldman Sachs. Mr. Abate is a Princeton graduate who has worked for the likes of Google, McKinsey & Co. And McKinsey & Co. So Melikot, how's your week been? You know, it's a Friday that you're catching me, so it's uh, it's the best time. Spring is springing. I'm sitting in New York. The flowers are coming to life. Whatever I talk about also only represents my opinions and not that of my yes. employer, which you guys will both see as you, you know, as you join institutions, they're very particular about sort of saying. Great. So, yeah, so the, the, the life outside of the office, I guess, is a balance that you like to strike well at, at Goldman. So... There's something, yeah, the outside the parks, that kind of thing which you like to do. I mean, I know in New York, you've got quite a few parks around, right? Yeah, I mean, you know, COVID has obviously thrown a wrench in a bunch of, you know, what we like to do for fun in a great city like, like New York. But whenever not working, it's, you know, nice to get out for a run. There's a park near my house in Brooklyn. Um, there's rooftops for the sunshine. So, you know, we do what we can. Work is important, but it's not everything. This seems to be a, a trend, I think, actually. I've just finished um, a spring week at Goldman. It seems to me that every single employee at Goldman seems to be a runner. Is, it, is that true? <laughs> Sorry, every every employee seems to be a what? A, a runner. Be a runner in their free time. A runner, yes. <laughs> um, you know, it's it's when you're working sort of many hours and sort of demanding jobs, I think it could be hard to participate in the sorts of team sports where like you or other people have to rely on each other's schedules. I mean, I play squash, I play other things as well, but running is great. It clears the mind. Our office in, in New York is right by uh, the West side highway, which is a phenomenal place to run. Um, and yeah, I think people are very competitive. So it makes sense. It makes sense. Do you run? Yeah, I, I actually do. I'm, a, I'm an athlete in my, my free time. Yeah, so at the moment, we're kind of going through injury. But I mean, in the in the past, I've kind of represented England a couple of times. Um, in my, my events, actually 400 hurdles. But I do, do a bit of long jump, dabble around in those events as well, track and field. Um, yeah, but I'm, I'm guessing you must have done some kind of sports while you're at Princeton as well. Yeah, I mean, so, you know, like Yoel, I, I come from Ethiopia and uh, running is in our genes. So, you know, I think I'm, I'm a good runner anywhere else in the world, but in my country, I'm below average. Um, 
my distances growing up were 800, 800 meter. I used to do cross cross country as well, you know, 5K, 10K. Uh, never been fast enough to do anything that's uh, under 800. All right. Yeah. I was so, about to say something we all have in common is just, you know, running. I don't know if that speaks to investing in like how runners and investors may think, but, you know, there might be some, some similarities there. I think so. I think so. I think that, you know, getting a course in mind and, and setting a goal and, and getting after it, you know, that's, that's, that's what it's about. I, running, investing, but really, truly a lot of other things in life as well. I'm sure you're both much better athletes than I am, but uh, I'm humbled that you put me in the same class. <laughs> and so um, you touched a little bit on, on your background and being a runner and, and being obviously of your Ethiopian heritage. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, certainly. So, I was born in Ethiopia, grew up across the African continent, as well as Yemen, which is in the Middle East. My parents were diplomats, so I was lucky to have a, to have a childhood that was very interesting and varied. But, you know, my goal has always been, uh, you know, to, 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 to be the best version of myself that I can be. I was inspired by my dad and by my mom, who worked very hard to beat the odds, um, and then to bring other people along with me because so many people have helped me. And so from Ethiopia, I ended up at Princeton in the US uh, to attend my university studies. Um, and from there, I joined McKinsey where I began my career in, uh, in all things business. And after doing sort of two years of New York-based pretty classic McKinsey stuff, one of my proudest achievements was uh, helping to open the McKinsey Ethiopia office in Addis Ababa in 2014. So, you know, the continent, the African continent and, 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 you know, people of the African diaspora outside of the continent are always very close to what I try to do and uh, who I try to help and be helped by. Yeah, definitely. That, that's really amazing. I didn't even know that Mackenzie had a, an office in Ethiopia. So how yeah. do you think... Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, I was just going to ask, how do you think, you know, growing up in Ethiopia and in the Middle East made you... Um, or taught you certain lessons, you know, some of your peers at Princeton may have not had growing up? One thing you notice when you go to a place like Princeton, where a majority of the students come from a particular social economic strata within the United States, is that their worldview is very cushioned and it's very comfortable because, you know, for, I mean, I don't want to generalize, right? That's not everyone at Princeton. And I loved my time at Princeton. It was eye-opening for me. But one thing I noticed very early on was, you know, uh, folks who come from the East Coast or the West Coast of the United States or if they're international, if they come from a developed country where they, like London, where they went to, you know, a private school, um, it, it's different to if you grow up in a developing country. Um, and so one thing I learned in Yemen very early when I went to an international school is the world is much bigger than my village, right? And you know, I went to a, an elementary school where there was only 200 students, but there were 70 nationalities represented. So that tells you very early on, oh, my God, I am just one of many different ways of being, many different ways of dressing, of speaking, of eating. Um, and that's an appreciation that I think, you know, serves well in the rest of life. I think once people get to college and they start to meet people from around the world, they start to appreciate it in time. But I felt very lucky to get exposure to that from early on. Yeah, and I think you, I think you touch upon uh, the the idea of, of diversity being kind of the integrating factor with with all that we do, really. And the, the more you can kind of expose yourself to all these different experiences, I mean, I mean, you 
going to, to school in Yemen, meeting all these different different people, having to, I guess, um, expose yourself to a new language as well, was it? Yes, I, I, absolutely. You know, my, 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 my native tongue that Ayurveda speaks as well as Amharic, uh, which is an old Semitic language. Um, you know, funny story. When we moved to Yemen, I was 10 years old and I hadn't really spoken English definitely not well at the time. And one day my dad came home, maybe a month before we moved in. He said, from this day on, everybody in this house speaks English. This was terrifying because we didn't speak any English. So as soon as his car, we heard his car approaching, we'd run to the bedroom and just pretend to go to sleep. You know, it was, that was a sort of horror of having to sort of learn a new language from scratch. But going to an international school where you just end up, you know, making friends and you're playing, you know, football on the field or, you know, you're, you're running together or what have you, you learn things very quickly. So not only English, but then I got the chance to, to, to learn Arabic as well um, at a very early age. You know, you pick up a lot when you're young. You know, you guys are still very young. You know, you can probably still learn Mandarin or, you know, probably, you know what, whatever other important language there are to learn today. Yeah, yeah no, definitely. I think one one language, a bit of an alternate language, which lots of people are trying to get into this at the moment, myself included, is um coding, and trying to wrap my head around coding at the moment. It's it's like no language I've ever tried to learn before. It's it's like it's a bit of maths. It's a bit of, of remem- remembering all these different words. But but yeah, have you ever tried to learn coding yourself? Zach, I mean, you know, you touch on probably my biggest insecurity, which is that the new language is 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 that of coding, and uh, I am, you know, I, I I am illiterate. I don't know the first thing about coding. I think I can make I can make a stretch and say, listen, you know, some of the financial modeling we do in Excel is is writing some sort of language, but it really isn't. You know, I think learning how computers think and speak and and, and telling them to do stuff that's that's what everybody has to learn, and uh, I feel woefully underprepared. Well, yeah, I guess this is this is the the real kind of evolution we're seeing in finance right now, where it's more more like this this coding side, and there's there's this kind of transition towards. I guess the whole world is transitioning towards coding, and this this crypto market, which is exploding at the moment. But, but what were your kind of first um, interests in the, the finance side of things? I mean, going to, to Princeton, and what kind of took your sights onto to McKinsey, and then eventually onto finance. Certainly. You know, let me start by saying uh, your listeners, whom I assume are similar to you, who are interested in finance already in college, you, know, you already have a leg up. My experience with finance was that um, I came into it a little bit later in my in my educational journey. Uh, you know, I studied international relations because I've always been interested in how the world works. Um, and, you know, I figured public service and working in public institutions was maybe the best way to do that. In time, I realized that actually what makes the world go around is is global commerce, right? It is people making goods and services in different parts of the world and, and meeting the needs and the desires of c- customers, you know, both businesses as well as consumers all over. Um, and I thought that was fascinating, especially coming from a country um, that was still recovering from communism and still trying to find its way into sort of market-driven prosperity. I mean, don't get me wrong. The market has many, many flaws, and we have seen them time and again. And most recently in COVID, we see how poor countries as well as poor communities in rich countries suffer disproportionately. So certainly the market doesn't have all the answers. 
But what I find really empowering about it is all the countries, especially the Asian tigers, who, who the power of commerce have been able to lift living standards, have been able to sort of go from you know poor to middle income, from middle income to rich. Um, and so for me, thinking about how does this happen, of course, first and foremost, it happens with smart, driven, talented entrepreneurs and people with ideas. But what empowers them is capital. Right. And, you know, if you have a great idea, but you don't have access to, you know, whether it's seed capital or growth funding or debt, then you can't build a good business. And if you can't build a good business, you can't hire people. Economies don't run. And that's the sort of fundamental reason that um, I was interested in in business when I started McKinsey and over time, more specifically in, in the financial sector as well. Yeah. And I think this is like something. Uh, a lot of people are starting to realize as well because I feel like that's something parallel to my own interest in finance because, um, you know, I came from a household of, like, everyone's a doctor, you know, I need to go into medicine. So for the majority of my life up until recently, you know, I was pursuing something in that medical field. And then uh, it took me uh, a summer in Ethiopia where I was, like, shadowing a surgeon to realize, you know, Instead of uh, physically helping one person at a time, you know, giving them my ultimate attention, you know, I could focus on maybe building one hospital at a time, you know, extrapolating that out and then just seeing how that could, that growth could potentially, potentially help more people. Yeah, Yuel, I think, you know, you hit on something great, which is, you know, impact at the sort of at a more individual or on a custom basis for impact at scale. Um, and these things are not necessarily mutually exclusive, right? Plenty of people start their careers in one and eventually as they grow, they find ways to, to, to sort of, you know, reach more people. I think finance is cool and finance is a big field and we get into it, but finance generally is cool because it, it is, it can get to scale. It can be very much at scale. But I have to be honest, I mean, UL, you're probably smart enough to be a, a doctor for sure. And Zach, you know, smart enough to be whatever you want to be. I wasn't smart enough to be a doctor or a lawyer. So thank God that I, I found a field that my talents uh, were actually well suited to. But I get the point of especially, you know, parents from immigrant backgrounds who want their children to be engineers, lawyers, doctors. I mean, these are three fantastic things. Um, but I think engineers, doctors and lawyers ultimately still need capital they still need finance they still need leadership in business um and so i think this is a really cool field yeah well 100 agree because i mean you can have the best engineers in the world but if there's no management or like you say capital to go around to, to fund those great ideas and unfortunately they, they never come into reality right and i think that's that's really what what, what my interest in finance has been as well um kind of my my background is mechanical engineering at university and my my decision actually majoring majoring that in the first place was to do with like the sustainability that's going on at the moment. Um, I know, in fact, in Ethiopia, they've got some great projects going on to do with, with um, hydroelectric power and that, that kind of side as well. Um, and you've probably got your own opinions on, on that side as well. But, um, but yeah, I think, I think it's, it's just great that we can kind of facilitate this, this growth, this, this movement towards, say, a more sustainable world and a more accessible um, um, global opportunity base, and we, if we can do that through allocating capital to where it needs to be, then that's the, the perfect way to get there. Um, but I guess that that really kind of um, brings me on to um, the point of 
Like, so you, you said you mentioned that you came onto finance maybe a little bit later than others. And of course, starting at McKinsey, being at this humongous kind of institution where you're able to kind of take your ideas wherever you want them to be, have the kind of impact that you want to have. It must have been pretty difficult to kind of have that thought about stepping away from that and then re-establishing your career in a different kind of field. So perhaps what was what actually was that point in time where you decided, right, okay, consulting isn't what I want to do long term and I'm going to go back to, to college and then re-study for, for finance? Right. You know, what's interesting about McKinsey is it very much pitches itself as a a training ground as as a you know if you're doing it coming out of college as you know a furthering of your studies but more rooted in the sort of the real world and i always approached it as the place i would go and test various hypotheses right what industries excite me what functions am i you know you you want to get to in life the intersection between um things that are needed and that there's demand for things that you are good at and care about and ideally also you know things that are rewarding to the extent that you know both you know spiritually mentally as well as financially um and so i i treated mckinsey as a as an opportunity to learn more about the world of business and what i found was a i was most excited working for um you know, investor clients, because I thought they were motivated to make decisions, you know, actual decisions. I think at McKinsey, sometimes we, and, and I should be very clear, I speak for myself and not the institution, but, you know, in my individual experience, uh, you know, we did a lot of really interesting and good work at the, when I was there. Um, but I found that working with investors, you know, the decisions were faster. It felt more impactful. It felt like uh, the answers were, you know, feeding some real life consequences. Um, I also enjoyed the healthcare and technology sectors. You know, in the United States, healthcare is maybe 35% of uh, GDP uh, or higher every year it grows. It's obviously important, you know, everyone keeping alive and healthy. And we've seen that more than ever in the last year. Um, and it's also very complex. It's a very complex sector, um, especially in the US. And so, you know, that excited me intellectually. Uh, and also, it's a place where you need to lower the cost and get to better outcomes. Um, technology, because it's a force multiplier across whatever sector you, you know, you, you're working in. Zach, you're an engineer, so you're probably more technically capable. Um, I come at it more from a user, and you know, how can we, how can we lower the cost of care and healthcare? How can we reach more people? How can we use big data to to get to insights faster, and so on and so forth? And that has applicability across the board. So these were the two things that I I thought from an industry perspective were exciting, and I thought investing you know, brings together a lot of disciplines, right? When you invest, especially in, you know, in private equity. So in private equity, you actually sort of own the business. You know, you act like a business owner because you are. So you need to understand strategy. You know, what is this business selling? What is its reason to exist, right? Um, how can you get better? And then you have to care about operations because at the end of the day, like, you know, the, you know, the, the bills have to be paid. The products have to be made. They have to be sold. You have to build a customer and so on and so forth. Um, and then, of course, finance itself, right? Like so much about the capital structure of a company and how efficiently it uses its investors' money as well as, you know, it, you know money it gets from banks and other lenders is critical to 
the financial performance of the company. And then, of course, underlying it all, there's a very human element, which is interacting with management teams, interacting with customers, suppliers, uh, financiers, and so on and so forth. And, you know, I thought that part of it is also really exciting. So I thought McKinsey was a place where I developed the sort of the taste and the insights to figure out this is where I want to take my career in the long term. Wow, yeah. And so tell us about that first day in the office at Goldman then. What what was going through through your mind on that first day? You know, interestingly, the first day was right here in my living room at my dining table looking into my screen having started, you know, in, in September of 2020, you know, in the thick of the pandemic. But what's really cool is, and again, similarly here, I don't speak for Goldman, I speak just for myself. But my first day on the job is, you know, most investing firms have what they call a Monday morning meeting. Um, and a Monday morning meeting is when everyone sort of gets on in the old days, it would be in a conference room. Now it's on Zoom and talks about, you know, A, you know, what are we looking at? What are the deals? It's a deal business, right? The thing you want to know is what's going on. What are we evaluating? And so the first thing was just like a global team based in New York, London, Hong Kong, everybody talking about the cool and interesting things they're working on, not just in healthcare, but in technology and consumer and industrials and all these faces, very diverse. Um, and talking about, you know, their worlds. I thought that was really cool. Um, and then you get questions that are thrown from sort of more junior staff to the senior investment professionals that are presenting. And I was very struck by the sort of the openness of it. And, um, and so that was it. That was the first day at work. And, but, you know, as, as you know, if you've started a new job or a new internship anywhere, you're just like, hey, like, how can I set up my email? You know, how can I set up my technology? How do there's a hundred faces on the screen? Am I ever going to learn their names? You know, there's very human emotions on that first day. And you're not thinking so much about, you know, how you're going to crush the job yet. You're just trying to, you know, survive. Yeah. Uh, just rewinding a bit. Um, after your time at McKenzie, um, is that when you went to Google and then from there, did you go on to Goldman or what was the trajectory? You? you know, people in, in finance, especially in the US have euphemisms for, for things. They call it a quote unquote non-traditional background. And when they say non-traditional background, all that means is you didn't start with two years of investment banking and then do immediately two years of private equity and then do two years of business school sort of. And I think while many people come through this path, I think it's unnecessarily restricting. Because if you think about what it takes to be a good investor, the first and most important thing is the ability to think analytically and critically. And whether you're a student of engineering uh, or someone who is approaching medicine, um, you know, analytical thinking is something that comes from many different fields. The second thing that's really important is having an understanding of how business works um, and a career in consulting, a career in banking or a career in business can can give you that, you know? And then the third is just having the discipline, the focus and the energy uh, to be able to, you know, dedicate the time needed to understand something. Um, so for me, after McKinsey, you know, I was interested in tech and I went to Google because Google has an investing arm, a small investing arm that I wanted to join eventually uh, with, you know, to do investing in technology and developing markets. Uh, it didn't quite work out that way. Sometimes it happens like that in your career. You know, you get there and the organization is different or it's more bureaucratic than you anticipated. Um, and so what I actually did after Google, after one year, a phenomenal year, but one where I felt um, 
my talents weren't being used to the best of their potential. You know, Google is an engineering organization. I'm not an engineer. Um, was I went to a small startup, which is a small investment bank called Cross Boundary in Nairobi. Um, and that was exciting because we're building a finance business from the ground up um, and, you know, developing markets. There's increasing private equity transactions. And wherever there's transactions, you need M&A, merger and acquisition advisors. And that's what I did for uh, three years. I thought it was amazing. It was amazing to build something from the bottom up. It was amazing to provide a service that's really needed. Um, but then, you know, three years was a long time. And ultimately, I, I decided to go back to school. Um, so I pursued my, my, my MBA at Harvard Business School. And that was just to take it to the next level, right? So you've spent five or six years working, working really hard, learning a lot. And then you come to a place where there's 900 other people, excuse me, 900 other people, you know, some come from the military, some are startup founders, some were teachers, many were bankers or consultants, to be sure. Um, and then they come from the four corners of the world. So it's a chance to come together and, you know, sort of, Take a break for two years and figure out what have we been learning? What hey, what what did you see? What did you learn about leadership? Where do you think the next innovations are coming from? What excites you? Hey, do you want to like start this company with me today in five years and ten years? That's what excited me to go to business school after working for roughly six years. Um, and that was the next chapter, was the Harvard Business School. Wow, yeah. And so you, you touched a little bit about like the reason why you wanted to go to the, to the business school was to find out what excited you. So did you ever find the answer to that question then? You know, I, so far I, I have, you know, it's been almost a year since I graduated and I realized that, you know, the question of, Hey, what do you want to be when you grow up is probably a lifelong pursuit. Um, but what I did learn about myself is that Actually, I love being surrounded by really smart people and trying to solve complex problems every single day. Um, the format of HBS is, you know, the case study. And the case study is basically you get in every one of your classes, you get a big business problem. And it's told from the point of view of the entrepreneur or the manager or uh, the operator. Right. And so it puts you in the shoes of, hey, how am I going to. Uh, sell more uh, insulin to hospital, something that's actually critical or something fun. Like there's a new energy drink that I want to introduce to like, you know, gym buffs like you guys, right? So where do I find these people? How, what do I price at? How do I brand to them? These are real business problems, right? And every single day you're faced with a multitude of data points, some of which conflict with each other. And your job is to take the synthesized information that you have talk to the smart people around you and get to the best possible answer. I wanted to do that for all of my career. And that's what private equity helps me do. It is to look at a lot of information, some of it which contradicts itself, and to try to learn as much as possible about how good a business is and what its future potential is. And along with many other smart people, help to make a decision on whether we invest and if we do invest, how to help that company get to the best possible version of itself. Well, yeah, no, that's that's a great definition of private equity, because I feel like, um, you know, when we just speak about finance or investing, banking or private equity, there's a lot of ambu ambiguity, like um, 
some things are just unclear. So I feel like that explanation was was really well put. Um, Thank you. I've I've, uh, I've I've had many different chances and fifty thousand different interviews. You will learn as you interview for jobs. I mean, you guys have started early in your lives, but you learn as you as you as you do for jobs. You try to find ten different words you can rearrange to answer the same question. Yeah, oh, that's a, that's an interesting one. Yeah. <laughs> You tend to always hear that with politicians on the TV as well, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're all politicians of some kind. Yeah. <laughs> Ooh, I like that. <laughs> so how, how would you say your experience at Goldman uh, in the private equity team has gone so far since September? Yeah, I would say that it's a very busy time in the world right now. You know, what's interesting is the first few months of COVID um, were a... A time of uncertainty. I mean, first and foremost, for our families and the people that we love and communities everywhere, right? I mean, more than anything, this is a health crisis. Um, uh, but then, you know, a close second is the economy because, you know, people, folks need to, to work and they need to eat. Um, and I think in, in rich countries like the US or the UK, with massive government stimulus, I think the worst was sort of avoided. Um, and then eventually, by sort of Q4 of last year, of 2020, um, the markets were very frothy, by which we mean there's a lot of deal activity. Um, a lot of good businesses not have only survived, but they've thrived. Um, capital markets are very... Um, vibrant because of the massive stimulus program by the U.S. government. Um, the federal funds rate is close to 0%, which means capital is extremely cheap. So what you have is great companies that have proven a business model that works with the new world we live in. You have a lot of motivated people who took three or four months to not really invest. So there's a lot of pent-up demand. And then you have access to low-cost capital, which means when you finance your deals, just like if you were to buy a house, if you know the interest rate is a 0%, then of course you're going to go get a mortgage, right? That's what it is like for private equity as well, right? You're getting access to debt at bargain, basement bargain terms. So to answer your question, it's been very busy. It's been very exciting. We look at a lot of businesses. Every week we look at multiple businesses. Um, and, uh, you know, the challenges are... We're still in a remote environment. I work from home. You know, I think it was three or four months before I met any of my colleagues in person, right? Um, and so that can be a little... Uh, I, I really love the people that I work with just based on Zoom, but I don't think there's any way to replicate this sort of human in-person interaction. So that part of it is a challenge. But you know, looking at multiple deals in consumer and technology and healthcare and being a part of the exciting times of, of the market is great. Uh, also being in healthcare, being very close to the innovation that's happening uh, to, to save people's lives. Um, that part of it has been exciting as well. Yeah. And you, you, you speak, you speak about the, about the, the part of your job in terms of speaking to these founders and not often, like I, I don't know the sizes of the, the businesses that you're working with, but many of these founders will, will have come from kind of like the, the small like foundations of their, their business, whether it's at university or or beyond. And it's almost like, I mean, I've really seen this with a couple of businesses I've looked at. It's like this business is almost like their own child and like how they've got to this point in time where they've, they've nurtured it up and they put so much effort. I mean, I mean it's, uh, running, running the business is really, really like a 24-7 job, isn't it? Really, you, You're always on the ball and you're always trying to find where the next opportunity is. And I guess... Um, You'll, you'll see that for your, for your job every day. So what would, what would you say you, you've learned from perhaps your clients as well? And how, can, how have you kind of 
interact with that maybe in, in the role you're doing now? Zach, that's a very good question. You know, for the for for the brilliant, you know, risk taking, hardworking people who found companies, uh, you know, that is a hundred percent, a two hundred percent dedication. So you rightly point out that they're very committed. And they very much are motivated by not just capital, but they're motivated by, you know, you know, having a kick-ass product or service. They're motivated by being their customers very happy. They're motivated by growth. There's a lot. Um, there are many elements within private equity sort of based on the stage of business, right? So in growth equity, when you're doing non-controlled deals, which means you're buying sort of a portion or a stake in the company, then most of the time it's a founder-owned business or founder-led business. Um, a little bit later, in more classic LBO, which is a sort of leveraged buyout, which is where I sit, um, you have more mature companies. You have companies that have probably existed for 10, 20, 30 years and have a long history of being profitable and cash positive, which means they may have transitioned from their original founders and they may have sort you know, quote unquote, professional CEOs. Um, but, you know, those CEOs too have probably, they, they usually have a, a meaningful stake in the company economically in the sort of shares. Um, and they are very motivated by the things that I mentioned earlier. So you have to understand what motivates the person you're speaking to. You have to understand, you know, what they are looking to from you. Capital by itself is not differentiated. You know, there are many investors in the world. There are many smart investors in the world. And increasingly, what's a little bit tougher is finding the sort of the quality asset to, to buy. So a little bit more of the power is now amongst the investees than it is amongst the investors. So you have to understand what it is that you bring to the table as an investor that is unique and differentiated to the founder, to the CEO, that the next 15 private equity firms don't bring. Um, and that part of, you know, I'm still a relatively junior or mid-level investment professional, but as you become more senior and as you become a, a managing director or partner, then you get to spend a lot more time thinking about those things. Um, and I can't wait for that. Yeah, that, that was really well said. Um, you know, in the finance world, there's a term that everyone uses to, um, to use a as a metric of success or success itself. So how would you uh, personally define success? You know, I think everyone should have their own, you know, definition of success. I think truly like my number one definition of success is that, you know, the people I love have the, the sort of the resources and the mental space to to do what makes them happy and to just, you know, start every day with a smile. I mean, that sounds very amorphous and, and wide and it is, but, you know, I have found, you know, I'm 33 now, which might, must seem like a dinosaur to you guys, but, you know, I've found so far in life that real happiness comes from sort of everyday things and everyday interactions and, you know, something that makes you smile. So I, for that for me, as well as the people I love is my number one criteria of success. Um, but so much of the meaning that we derive comes from our professions, right? So professionally in finance, my metric for success is, you know, have I, have I gotten to the right answer about a business? Have I understood what is going to drive its growth? 
where the products it produces or the services it produces are best fit. Who, what problems do they actually solve, right? And then ultimately, how does that translate into, um, you know, the, the the growth numbers, right? So, and in, in finance, there's a there's an all sort of important metric, EBITDA, which is earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation, amortization, unnecessarily geeky. All it means is what is the operating financial performance of the company before you put in things like tax, the capital structure, interest, and so on and so forth, right? So essentially, does your business make money, right? A good business should make money. Now, growth stage businesses need a lot of investment to get to the potential that they, you know, where they where they are able to make the most amount of sort of profit that they can. So obviously, as an investor, I want to grow the EBITDA of the companies in my portfolio to the greatest extent possible. And that would mean that I've created a lot of or that company has created a lot of value for its customers, for its empl- employees and for its investors. Right. Uh, so that's the metric that tells us that. But it belies many, many other things that have to be right. Management teams that are motivated, employees that feel proud of the work that they do, products that solve real world problems that all eventually then create something that users love and then sort of profits follow. Um, so it's marrying those things that I think is is a sort of the definition of, of, of you know, professional success for me. Yeah. And I guess success is, is a long road like we, like we spoke about. I mean, it, no, no one can really say where the line between going towards success and success is. And I mean, I guess it's finding that balance between always chasing like what you want to do and finding the next best thing. But then I guess also taking the time to appreciate that like there will come a time where you can look back and be proud of what you achieved and know at that point that you you like have reached success. And I guess really I, I want to try and understand for you what where that point might lie. So in the next, say, 10, 15 years, where, where do you see yourself? And like, what, what do you reckon will be your path towards it? Zach, it's a great question. And I understand your question to be, you know, sort of how do you think about legacy? You know, what's the long-term impact that you want to have? And I don't think it's ever too early to think about that. I think for me, so many people have helped me be on the path that I'm on. You know, so many mentors, so many people who've invested their time and their energy and their resources. And, you know, my most important um, metric of success outside of the sort of the happiness of the, you know, my family and the loved ones that I talked about earlier is how many young professionals, especially those uh, that are, has been historically, they come from communities that have been historically uh, disenfranchised or underprivileged, you know, whether those are, you know, African Americans in, in the United States or, uh, or females everywhere or ethnic minorities in, in Europe or uh, large groups of people in, in Africa and Asia. Um, how can I motivate and inspire and help people get to their potential, right? Because I know that the people who have helped me have given me the ability to help, you know, a hundred times more people. Right? There's a multiplier effect there. So I want to do in my day job as well as outside of work, I want to create a group of people who are motivated to bring other people up with them. I think this is the legacy that I would love to leave behind. Um, and then in terms of investing per se, I want to build a track record. You know, if you think about how private equity works, you 
you make it, an, unlike the public markets, you don't get instant feedback in how good you are because you invest in a company and it's usually four or five years before you're in a position to exit that investment, right? So there's a lag time between when you evaluate the investment and when you know the chickens come home to roost. So I want to build a track record across several life cycles of funds that says, hey, I'm actually a good investor. Here are the mistakes that I've made and what I've learned from them. And here is a pattern recognition that says, when you see A, B, C, and D, it generally indicates that you're looking at a good business with tremendous potential. You know, I want to be able to develop that intuition uh, because, you know, from everything that I understand, it takes many years to sort of get to that place. Um, and then, you know, with both the financial rewards as well as the intellectual sort of horsepower that comes with that, I want to be able to apply that to, you know, investing in sustainable businesses and looking for new ways for capital to solve some of the more pressing public and social issues that we have in the world as well. Um, so I know that's a, a, a long-winded answer, but, you know, legacy to me is the impact that we have on people who are, who are motivated and generally underprivileged. It's about getting really good at your job so that you can really excel at it and so that you can use the capital and the knowledge that comes from that to solve social and public issues as well. Yeah, and that, that, that was such a, a great elaborate answer that you just said there. So how would you... How would you um like what advice would you give to these young people that you're trying to inspire like what advice would you give um to enable them to be in a position that you're in now where you want your legacy to be to help others I think probably the first and most important thing is just to figure out what it is that's at the intersection of what the world wants and what you're good at right you know, I think people say pursue your passions. I think that's absolutely the case. But also, especially for, you know, people of color and the underprivileged, I don't think we can always afford to only pursue our passions uh, because we also live in a world where it rewards different things differently. Right. So I think it's really important to figure out the intersection of what am I really good at and what is there a market for in the world? Um, so that's the first thing, like do that journey of discovery. The second is talk to others who have done it before you. Right. Uh, you know, so that speaks to mentorship. No one person is ever going to be a template for you, because guess what? If you want to be exactly like somebody else, that's a waste of a life because, you know, all of us are unique individuals. But there's a lot of collective wisdom in the village, right? So all the elders, you know, the 50 or the 100 people that you can draw inspiration from, you know, talk to them, you know, see what they have done. Because you can learn from the things they've done well and you can learn from the mistakes and, you know, the screw-ups that they've, they've done as well. So, you know, lower the cost to yourself by learning, from, by learning from others. And the third is, like, live life itself because... It is really important to get after your dreams. It's really important to grind, put your head down, put the time in. You know, while you're young, you still have energy and so on. But the people that you love, your family, your, you know, your significant other, eventually when you have your own children, so on and so forth. I mean, these things are truly what life is ultimately about. So don't become a boring square with no interests and, you know, no relationships because um, that doesn't help you. You, know, you could have, you know, millions in the bank and a fancy title, but if you have no one to enjoy or share that with, um, then it's kind of a bummer. So it's important to maintain that balance with life itself and the interests and the people in your life while you're getting after it. Definitely. 
And I think uh, uh, one of life's greatest like challenges is always balancing those, in, like balancing those two lives in between. But I'm sorry, Zach. What, what were you gonna say? No, yeah, I was gonna re- gonna really echo what you said there, Hill. That, like, like you say, like the the three aspects that you touch on, and I think the the one that we can kind of all relate to most at this stage in our our um, our lives, and I'm sure the others will will hopefully become more more um, visible as we kind of grow older, is the the learning aspect. I mean, we're sitting at, at school all day trying to learn get all this information. We're talking to you right now, trying to gain from your wisdom and all these sources of information that we've got around us and trying to be able to get them into this like small space, which is our brain, right? Which has got so many things, like you say, going on all around us. And I guess really what one, one kind of um, place I've found refuge um, in trying to learn this thing as well as books. And um, I mean, I, I was, I had the privilege really of only, well, only really started to read books quite quite a late age however since i've started reading i've picked up on so many different things like like you say you can just really lose yourself in a book and i think that's something that's so amazing that kids can can kind of um get a young age and that's so so amazing and such a great gift that you can have so if you had any book recommendations for the likes of the people who you want to inspire in the next generation what would those book recommendations be Zach, I absolutely agree. I think books are a dream and, and, and they're magic. And I think, you know, the, the intellectual trajectory of, and I would say not just intellectual, I would say also spiritual and mental, you know, sort of the things, you know, being an all-rounded person. So the, the trajectory of someone who reads, you know, one book a month versus someone who doesn't, you know, it's the difference between a horizontal line of 180 degrees and one of, you know, 45 degrees, which is what you want your intellectual trajectory to be, right? You always want to improve. You want to learn to the earlier point about seeking the wisdom of others. That's what books do. They take you to a different world. They take you to to a place of, uh, of learning from others' experiences. So I actually recently read um, True Dog by Phil Knight, who's the founder of Nike. And to be honest, usually I try to avoid quote-unquote business books uh, because, you know, in my sort of, in my limited leisure time, I try to sort of get lost in the world of fiction uh, and in the world of sort of fantasy. Uh, but this was not like your typical sort of like textbook business book, right? And I see that Yoel is pulling up a copy of, of, of Shoe Dog. Uh, and, you know, my experience was it was really inspiring to see an entrepreneur who sort of started with an idea and who's very frank about many of the failures that, you know, were in the way before he sort of got to uh, got to excel, got to actually, you know, create this company that we all know today. And I thought it was a, a beautiful human story. And it also includes, you know, personal tragedy. I won't ruin it for anyone who hasn't read the book yet. But I think it's an equal parts inspiring because it shows us what we're all capable of. Um, I also love to le- read a lot of works by uh, young, uh, you know, authors from around the world, a lot from Africa. Um, and my, my sister, actually, my younger sister is, is, a, is a, a budding author. Her name is Karen Abate. So she will be publishing a book in the next year. So be on the lookout for her. But, you know, people like her. You know, she's, she models herself after folks like Chimamanda uh, Adichie, who's, a, who's a, a famous Nigerian writer. And she tells the stories of the sort of the global diaspora. And she talks about universal themes of the longing and you know finding ways to 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 blaze 
fails and worlds we haven't been before. So uh, I really love her book, Americana, which is her famous book. Uh, but she also has a collection of short stories called The Thing Around Your Neck, uh, which is nice bite-sized sort of like 30-page stories that take you to uh, a particular world. And, uh, you know, they're low commitment and high reward. Um, so as an investor, I'm always looking for, you know, ways to, 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 to maximize returns. And, uh, that's a, that's a great book for that. So I can go on for, for, for days, but those are, those are the most recent books that I've really loved. Yeah. And thank you so much for those fruitful suggestions. You know, we'll definitely take you up on that. And I think our listeners will enjoy exploring those as well. But, um, you know, I just want to personally thank you so much for coming on the podcast. This was really an honor to to speak with you and gain some insight. But, yeah, thank you. Yeah, Yoel and Zach, it's, uh, it's a pleasure to, to, to speak with you guys. I think, you know, you and your listeners are, are coming into the sort of the professional world at a very interesting time when uh, technology and healthcare and innovation across a, a variety of spaces is, is making our world better. But we're also the crisis that we live in is, is creating many challenges that my generation and your generation have to solve. So it's never too early to start. And I'm really happy to see you guys, you know, getting after it. Uh, but also you're still in college. So make sure to have fun, guys. You know, when when the choices between studying for the fifth or sixth hour or going out and, you know, like kicking a ball around with the mates uh, or going for a pint, the latter is the right answer. <laughs>